All right, let's go Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, if you don't have one that you can call your copy of Scripture, um, we would love to give you that physical one that's just sitting there. Um, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but chief among all of those really important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. It's by His Word that He makes Himself known. And so if the scriptures are what he uses in your heart and life to do that, um, then it's just kind of smart, I think, to, to, to be reading the scriptures on your own, to be digging in and chasing after him in his word. And so if you don't have a copy of God's word that you can call yours, call that one yours. And I'll call that the best part of my day if you take that home and start reading it. Um, so Jonah chapter one, we kicked off a brand new thing last week. We're slowly explore, exploring the Old Testament uh, book of Jonah. Uh, and so if you're new here, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, uh, Jonah's story is playing out seven to 800-ish years before Jesus steps onto the scene. Uh, and he's a prophet to what's called the Northern Kingdom of Israel. Uh, at this point in history, God's people have split into two different kingdoms, the Northern Kingdom called Israel and the Southern Kingdom called Judah. Jonah is hanging out in the North, all right? And so he's a prophet to the Northern Kingdom of Judah. Uh, northern kingdom of Israel. Um, and so uh, Jonah, though, the book of Jonah is what we would call one of the minor prophets, meaning that he just wrote a lot less than some of the ones we call major prophets. It's just short. It's only four chapters long. It wouldn't take you much at all to just sit down and read it straight through. You can knock it out in 30 minutes. Um, but our effort, though, our hope is for this to kind of take us uh, a couple of months and to run us all the way through the month of November. And so our plan is to commit several weeks to it. So we spent our time Last week, if you weren't here, we spent our time last week kind of kind of painting the picture, if you want to go artistic with it, or just kind of explaining the historical landscape that Jonah plays out within. Um, Jonah was a real person with a real calling from God uh, to speak on God's behalf. And I, I need to point that out on purpose uh, because it's become a little bit of a vogue thing over the last 200-ish years to, to, for some folks to just outright dismiss the book of Jonah as some, nothing more than an elaborate legend that's been handed down through the Hebrew people. And specifically, they point to the account, the episode of the great fish, right? We're going to come to that in chapter two. We're not there yet. We'll get there. Um, some of those people, <laughs> like crazy that they would think so, but some people think that that's a fantastical thing. And that's really like, how would that even happen? Right? Some people find it hard to believe that a fish could swallow a dude and that dude would survive. Right? I don't know. I wonder why they, I wonder why they have doubts about that. All right. So some people reject every miracle of the Bible. Some people wouldn't go that far, but like they would just kind of reject that one, all right? Uh, but really, they're kind of functionally rejecting all of them, all right? Because like the moment you flip the switch on the idea that God cannot do something he wants to do, you've, you've kind of walked down a pathway that doesn't come back, right? And so that's for another time, though. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Jonah was a real person with a real history and a very very real calling of the Lord. And we saw in our big kind of overarching telling of the Jewish history last week that Jonah and his people were the recipients of an incredible grace from God. An absolutely mind-boggling grace from God. God was aboundingly compassionate to them, we said. How? God chose to bless Israel in spite of their terrific sin. 
Idolatry was rampant. There was sin in the camp, terrible sin in the camp, but God allowed the northern kingdom during this time period, the northern kingdom of Israel, to flourish socially and economically and politically. They even expanded their borders during this part of their history. And so uh, we, we learned last week, though, that God used Jonah as, to kind of play a role in the dispensing of those blessings. Jonah got to be the prophet whispering the blessings of the Lord into the ear of the wicked king Jeroboam. Even though Jeroboam was not a good guy at all, even though the Bible explicitly tells us that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, God chose to. He looked down on Israel with pity and he chose to bless them in spite of themselves. And Jonah was the guy sitting in the king's court going, yeah, God wants good for you. It's a pretty cushy gig, right? It's kind of probably something I would like to have a job doing. Like you, want to, you want to be the guy that gets to tell the king good news. That comes with perks. Jonah had that job. God was gracious and compassionate to Israel in spite of Israel's sin. And he used Jonah as his mouthpiece to declare the giving of those good things. And so the main thing that we saw and discovered last week was, was that Jonah and his people were the recipients of an astounding grace and an abounding compassion long before Jonah was ever called to go take God's message somewhere else. They're on the receiving end of good things. They're not on the giving end of good things. But eventually Jonah was called. God raised him up for a purpose. And so now we get to begin digging deeply into Jonah chapter one. You ready to do that? Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Okay, so we see the book of Jonah start out the same way that we see pretty much every other prophetic narrative start out, right? Like those of you who are more biblically literate, those of you who have spent a lot of time reading the Old Testament, God calls his prophet to speak on his behalf. And it's this incredibly common story. This is, uh, this is how we see guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah raised up. This is how we see guys like Ezekiel and Hosea raised up. Hosea was one of Jonah's contemporaries. And so this is a steady drumbeat all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, especially in the narrative section of, of the prophets. And so the very first words of the book of Jonah are in this incredibly repetitive refrain that like that we've seen all throughout the old testament there's nothing there's nothing distinct here there's nothing unusual here there's nothing new we could say especially if you've read the prophets before over and over again this is how god calls his guy get up i got a job for you go speak on my behalf i've seen something and now i want you to say something over and over again this is what we see in the Old Testament, God has paid special attention to some action going on, and now he's ready to speak into the situation. So, like he does over and over and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, he raises up a man to speak on his behalf, a mouthpiece. We know from last week that Jonah is already serving as a prophet in the court of King Jeroboam, and he's got this cushy gig, but we don't know, we don't know, however, when in this time period of his role in Jeroboam's court that God calls him here. King Jeroboam reigned uh, from 786 to 746 B.C., so there's about a 40-year 
window in there. Uh, plus, there's the, the possibility that Jonah could have lived beyond Jeroboam. There's no king mentioned here in, in Jonah's account that kind of gives us a more accurate dating. So the, the truth is we just don't know when exactly Jonah is called out to go to Nineveh. But if we assume early to you know late 8th century or early to mid, I guess, 8th century BC, that'll kind of give us some bookends for those who are trying to keep score. So if you're the history person, early to mid 8th century. I don't know. But what we do know is that Jonah is told to get up told to go somewhere. So where's he told to head off to? Nineveh, that great city. That great city. And so the obvious questions this morning to answer are, are what and where are Nineveh? Right? What and where are Nineveh? Nineveh was a real place. Um, and for a very long time, we had no idea where it was. We actually did not know where Nineveh was. Uh, It was utterly destroyed by the Babylonians in 612 BC, and they did such a good job that nobody could find it. Like, could you imagine destroying a city to the point where no one millennia later has any clue where that city was? Like, they, they had no idea. The city of Nineveh was completely decimated, and we honestly had no proof outside of the Bible that it was a real place until the 1840s. That's a long time to be without proof, right? And as you can probably imagine, a lot of skeptics pointed to the absence of that historical Nineveh as an argument against the historicity of the Bible. I mean, wouldn't you? I would. You can't even find Nineveh. How am I supposed to believe that the story is true? But then some British explorers began excavating an archaeological site just outside the modern-day city of Mosul in northern Iraq. sits on the Tigris River. And they discovered Nineveh in the 1840s. They found it. Like, Mosul's pretty much just built on top of the place. Um, it's almost, it's going to be hard to imagine, but it's almost like northern Iraq doesn't have a lot of really great places to build a big city. And so, like, people would congregate in the same good land no matter what period of time that we're talking about. Ooh, what's that? Arable real estate right by a river? Sounds like a great place to hang out. Let's plant our city there. And so Mosul is pretty much Nineveh. And so from the 1840s on, we now know where Nineveh is. We can point to it on a map. It's in northern Iraq. And man, it was indeed a great city. Um, At the end of the book of Jonah, God is going to mention that there were 120,000 people living there, which is a massive city for that part of history. It's a big, big deal. Assyria is growing. The city of Nineveh is growing. Uh, It will eventually become the capital of Assyria. Uh, Nineveh is not the capital at this point when Jonah's story is playing out, but it will eventually become the capital of Assyria. Um, We think that that happens in 705 BC, so a generation or two after the events of Jonah, um, probably during the time period of Nahum, if you're familiar with that prophet. Um, uh, But during Jonah's day, the city was just exploding. It was just bursting at the seams. Everything is growing. It's beginning to expand and expand and expand. And so there are a lot of statistical and sociological reasons to begin to pay attention to the city of Nineveh. But there's a bigger reason, I think, that God's going to send Jonah to Nineveh. And so he knows exactly how he's going to use both the nation of Assyria and the city of Nineveh in his sovereign plan to save his people. See, God has a purpose 
for Nineveh. He knows precisely how he will raise them up, and he knows precisely how he will one day tear them down. And he is putting things in place. But right now in Jonah's day, part of that placement is that he wants to send them a prophet to call out against their sin. And so he calls to Jonah. Get up. I got a job for you. Arise, he says. I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. I've seen their evil. Uh, I've seen uh, what they're doing there. Go to that Gentile nation, that faraway Gentile nation, and preach for me. Get up, Jonah. I got a job for you. Jonah is given a calling that is incredibly similar to, in a lot of ways to all the prophets that came before him and a lot of the prophets that were going to come after him. But, but Jonah's response doesn't, doesn't look at all like the ones that came before him. What does he do? Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Let's call a time out there. Um, so Jonah doesn't want anything at all to do with going to Nineveh, does he? He's getting out of there. He gets up, he arises like God told him to, uh, but it's not to, to go where God told him to go, it's to run the other direction as fast as he can. Tarshish is another place that we're, uh, it's got a lot of speculation as to, you know, surrounding it. There are a couple of major options that scholars like to point to as far as where exactly on the map it was, it was located. Uh, we know, though, that it was on the Mediterranean and that it was a port city. Why? Because you could get in a boat and sail there. Smart, right? <laughs> Now, Tarshish is mentioned in a number of other places in the Old Testament. This is not the only reference to Tarshish in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, there are several places where we know that they had incredibly famous shipping ships, all right, which is a hard thing for me to say, shipping ships. All right? so, so two of the most popular locations that you know, the people who know this kind of stuff like to point to. Uh, and one is modern-day Tunis, uh, which is the northern tip of Africa. Uh, in, back in the Roman Empire, they called it Carthage. Right? There are a lot of people who try to argue that before it was called Carthage, it was called Tarshish. All right? And so that's one possibility. All right? The second option is that it's somewhere on the southwestern or, or southeastern coast of Spain. excuse me. Uh, and so even further west. So you, so you have a place in northern Africa, kind of halfway across the Mediterranean. And then you have another place in Spain, the rest of the way across the Mediterranean. All right? And so there's the, 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 the thing that we need to pay attention to is that regardless of where exactly the city of Tarshish is or happened to be, here's, here's what we need to understand. Jonah is headed... His goal is to get away from what God is calling him to do. He's running the opposite direction, metaphorically and literally. He's getting out of there. He's trying his best to flee from the presence of the Lord. All right, quick survey. How many of you think it's possible to flee from the presence of the Lord? <laughs> nobody, nobody? Good, I don't have to deal with that issue. Remember how last week I said that sin makes you stupid? Still true. Still true. Look at the rest of verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. All right, so let me give you a really quick peek behind the pastoral counseling uh, curtain, if you will. If you come to me, 
just hypothetical situation. If you come to me and you tell me that you're wrestling with some kind of major decision in your life and, and then you lay out the options before you because I, I want to be a good pastor. And I'm just like, well, let's hear them out. Right? And so you lay out the options and then one of your options is a clearly unbiblical option. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to grab the closest Bible. I'm going to open it up to Jonah, to this verse. I'm going to point out and then I'm going to make you read it. And then I'm going to say the words out loud. Jonah went looking for a sinful, rebellious, disobedient option, and he had no problem finding it. Right? Hear me clearly. An open door does not equal God's will. In fact, often it's the exact opposite of God's will. Jonah's open door was a blatant act of disobedience. It was a blatant act of rebellion. He went down to the boat dock in Joppa. He paid his fare, probably with money that God somehow gave him, and he sinned against the Lord. Period. But listen, he didn't just sin against the Lord. Yes and amen against the Lord, but not just against the Lord. God intends for the people of Nineveh to have a warning against his wrath. And at this point in the story, Jonah clearly does not care to give them that warning. There's a heart problem here. I told you earlier that the first couple of lines from the book of Jonah are this incredibly common thing, this thing that sounds familiar to anybody familiar with the Old Testament prophets. Jonah's called out exactly like all the prophets before him, but by verse 3, man, anybody reading Jonah's story would have been astounded at the audacity of a disobedient prophet. It would have appalled them. The Jewish audience would have been rightly alarmed by this story, and so rightly are we. I mean, how easy is it? I, I, don't, I feel it in myself. How easy would it be to scoff at the idea who would ever dare try to go against the will of God? He told God no. What a moron. Feel that in you? It's in me. How, how dare he tell God no? I would have done better. And the clear, obvious problem with that posture, whether we're talking about a Jewish audience or we're talking about ourselves, is that I'm a giant hypocrite. Right? Maybe, maybe you're knocking this out. See, I go looking for and and I'm pretty adept at justifying sinful, disobedient options far more often than I'd like to admit standing on a stage in front of a bunch of people with a face mic and lights on. Sure, you're knocking it out. Now, see, I am Jonah. We often like to tell Old Testament stories where, you know, guys like David defeat the, the giant. Oh, I'm David. No, no, no. I'm more like Jonah. I'm the one who has a clear calling from God and I run the other direction I'm trying to make myself sound smart in the process. We're going to discover Jonah's specific reasoning for running away later on. But regardless of what his reasoning for disobedience is and regardless of what my reasoning for disobedience happens to be, I am often guilty of trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. The times when I don't like his plan for me. 
the times when I'm, uh, I push back from, from, from repentance and try to avoid that in my life? Those are moments, I don't know about you, but those are moments that I tend to shut down. Maybe you're doing better than me on that one too. I push back from prayer. I push back from engaging him in his word. I push back from the, the Christian community that he has put in my life for my good. I, I tend to, to try to run as fast as I can in the other direction and put some distance between uh, my disobedience and what I believe is his holy gaze. Right? Try all my best devices. See, apparently sin makes me stupid too. And in those moments, I tend to dig the hole a lot deeper. I hurt myself, and I usually end up hurting others. And if the story stopped here, it'd be, it'd be tragic, right? It'd be a story that a lot of people in our world think is the only story available. But the boundlessly compassionate God of ours. He is not overwhelmed by my stupidity or apparently Jonah's. So what do we see at the beginning of verse 4? But the Lord. Always. Hear me, church. Always pay extra attention whenever the Bible says, but God. But God did this. But the Lord did that. An entire galaxy is buried inside of those three little words. All right, some of the best verses in the Bible start with that little incredibly simple turn. But God did blank. Absolutely massive reality. In spite of Jonah's sin, in spite of his rebellion, in spite of his half-baked attempts to try to run away in the opposite direction, God pursues him. He pursues him. Church family, God's, God's character hasn't changed since Jonah's day. He's still a God who pursues. I don't know about you, but that's really good news for me. There are times in my heart and in my life that I desperately need to be pursued. Desperately need to be pursued. I hope it sounds like good news to you, but another question does emerge out of that reality. How does God pursue Jonah? I keep reading verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Jonah wants to get in a boat and try to run away? Okay, fine. God can find him there. And he sends him a windstorm. And when I say he sends it, I mean he sent it. Right? He didn't gently roll the windstorm out there. No, no, this is Nolan Ryan. He leaned all the way back, kicked that knee up, and he let her rip. He hurled it upon the sea. We're told that, that the boat was getting ready to break into pieces. And so there's an opportune moment here, I think, to publicly think through some theology that I'm just going to go ahead and guess that a lot of Christians would give Kind of, kind of assent to, but never have actually thought through and gamed out completely. So here's the question to answer. Is God sovereign over the storms of your life? Yes or no? We're all good church kids, right? What's the answer? Yeah, the answer is yes. Both the physical storms and the very more poetic metaphorical storms in our lives. God is sovereign. He is king. He is in control. 
But we can take another step into the deep end of the pool here. We can take a pretty big step, and it's a little daunting. God is sovereign and reigns with complete control over every single moment of every single storm, period. Sometimes, sometimes that storm is the product of our own making. You sinned and your sin had fallout. Ever been in a storm like that one? I can count a few. I did something dumb and it affected not just my life, but even some other people's lives. My sin had fallout and God used that storm produced by me to cause me to let go of my sin and my stupidity and instead cling to him. It was a moment intended for my good. He's good like that. Some of you have lived through storms like that in your life and you've come out the other side of it trusting God more. Quicker to repent. Some of you may, may still honestly be hanging on in the middle of the storm you created, waiting for it to blow over. He'll get you there. It's coming. He's either trustworthy to cling to in that moment or he's not. He'll get you there. Sometimes the storms are a product of our own making. Sometimes, though, sometimes, according to what we see here in Jonah, God is the author of the storm, and he has given it for the express purpose of terrifying you into finally paying attention. He's sovereign over that storm, too. He's just as actively using that storm for your good. It's a wake-up call. And in the best of cases, that wake-up call uh, rattles us and to, to moving into what God has actually called us to do. But sometimes, though, whoo, tragically, sometimes our hearts are so calloused that even the wake-up call is not enough. Make no mistake, it still accomplishes its purpose, but sometimes that purpose is a further hardening. Guess which one Jonah is experiencing? Look at verse 5. Then the mariners were what? Afraid. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So this storm is at a level that professional mariners, uh, guys who spend all of their time and their careers out on a boat carrying cargo for money, they think this storm is a big deal. They are terrified. They think that they are about to die. And so what do they do to save themselves? They start hurling overboard. Same word as before. They hurl overboard all the stuff that's worth a lot of money to them. They've seen a storm or two in their time on the water. But this storm, this storm is different. This storm has got them worried enough that they, they're ready to take the massive financial hit of just chucking everything overboard. They've got to fix the problem. They've got to fix the problem fast. They're in a hurry. All in a vain attempt to try to lighten the boat. But they're getting the message, though. This is no ordinary storm. This one seems to have a divine origin. So in the middle of verse 5, we see that they start calling out to their pagan gods to save them. 
whether we're dealing with, dealing with it in the story of Jonah or we're dealing with it in our own day and age, here's an inescapable truth about the way the world works. Pretend gods are powerless to remove a storm that the true God has put into place. They're impotent. They cannot hear you. It doesn't matter how desperate your prayer is. It doesn't matter how fervent your belief happens to be. Imaginary gods cannot hear you. They are powerless to do anything about your very real problem. The sailors are starting to get pretty desperate, and so they're clinging to any possible solution they can think of. And So they each call out to their own personal gods. They hurl all the cargo overboard, but then they notice they're short one person on the head count. Jonah has slipped down into the bottom of the boat. He's decided to take a nap. Jonah apparently is not scared of this storm. He's not worried. And answering the why question right now, I think it reveals something incredibly important about Jonah and about his story. Why is Jonah not scared of the storm. See, after failing to flee from the presence of the Lord, Jonah is now ready to meet his fate rather than repent. He knows God caught up with him. And instead of calling out to God in repentance, Jonah is hardened against him. He goes, he goes down into the boat and says, I'm just going to go sleep. Don't care. There's another place in the Bible where we see someone sleeping in a boat during a great storm, right? Jesus. In Jesus' case, he, he's not worried because, well, he's in charge of the storm. He's, he's the one responsible for when the storm is going to end and how the boat is going to fare and all the lives of the people on board. Don't worry, he's got it. Why are you worried? I'm in control here. That's Jesus' game. But in Jonah's case, Jonah's not worried either, but it's not because he's in control. It's because he's sinfully asserting control that doesn't belong to him over this situation. He knows that the storm is there because of his decision, because of his rebellion. And the people on the boat, they're they're, going to perish because he refuses to give up that control. See, rebellion against God, it it never comes without other terrible consequences. It messes up a lot of things. Creates an apathy in Jonah against the welfare of those on the boat with him. He just doesn't care. He's calloused. He could save them right now by simply doing what God has called him to do, and instead he lays down and goes to sleep. He has made up his mind. So is God out of options? Are God's hands tied because Jonah said no? Not even close. Look at verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, O sleeper? 
Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. God doesn't merely hurl a storm. He also apparently sends a pagan sailor to give Jonah a very literal wake-up call. And notice what he says to him. Arise. After rebuking him and the insolence of sleeping in a situation as desperate as this one, God puts the same word on the lips of a pagan as he called Jonah with back in verse 2. Get up. Arise. That word is going to make one more very important appearance later on in the story. God's not done with Jonah just yet. He's not done with him. He continues to pursue. Jonah is dragged out of his hiding spot with a summons for him to actually care for other people. He's called to prayer by a pagan, no less, and to do whatever he can to appease his God or gods, whoever they may be. This pagan sailor doesn't know who the true God is, but what he does know, at the very least, what he does know, he understands that his is a place of humility and repentance. He's not in charge. His role is to call out to the, for mercy and grace from the one who is in charge. Listen, maybe that's you today. Maybe you're like that sailor on the fringe. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, but you're starting to get a sense from the world around you. You're starting to get a sense that you are a sinner in need of a savior. You are in trouble and desperately need a rescuer. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, all people have fallen short of God's glory, that that we are owed the righteous and just punishment for that sin. The Bible calls it the wrath of God. But just like God pursued Jonah and just like God was pursuing the sinful city of Nineveh, God is pursuing you too. He's pursuing you as well. How? He sent his only begotten son. He didn't have to hurl a storm in this one. No, he sent his son. Jesus puts on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. And he died on a cross as a substitute in your place to make full and final payment for your sin. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the one who conquered both sin and death, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to turn away from your sin and turn to him as Savior and Lord. You can do that this morning. Listen, you don't have to run like Jonah did. Like God's capable of sending the storm. Seems smarter not to go down that route. You don't have to run like Jonah did. If you want somebody to talk to, I'd love to be helpful. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. And there'll be a time built out for people to respond to God's word. I'll be down front if you want somebody to chat about it. What if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus? How do we respond to God's word? The same way we do every single week. We repent of sin and we... Re- Lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text, right? And this week, I think he's showing us that he's not making suggestions on our heart and life. Now, he's giving commands. Don't mix the two up. He's giving commands. Hear me, church family. The consequences of disobedience are not merely limited to missing out on some opportunities God would have for you. No, no, they cause damage. Grave damage sometimes might actually lead to hurting some people. 
But that's not all that God, I think, is revealing about himself. I, think, I also think that he's showing us that he's willing to pursue. He's willing to pursue you, even through the midst of your nonsense. Stupid rebellion. Brazenly asserting your pretend control over the circumstances of your life. Then it's a good day to repent. It's a really good day to repent, to seek the Lord and his will for you before he needs to turn up the volume. Jonah's not done running yet. But you don't have to wait as long as Jonah did. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Whoever you are and however God is calling you to respond to his word this morning, let's respond together as a church family. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the book of Jonah. God, I tend to put myself into the story like all of us usually do, but I try to reserve the right to go for the good characters. Not the ones who are defiant and rebellious and fail to understand the bigness of who you are and what you've called us to. The truth is, is that I frequently run the wrong direction. I frequently justify my rebellion as something that's better for me and better for your people and better for others, and I'm usually making a mess of all three. But you are good. And you pursue us even to the places that we think you are not. You were already there. There wasn't a moment where Jonah escaped your love or your control or your call. Would you open our eyes to see before long before Jonah got there. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know this morning? Would you draw men and women into your kingdom? Maybe save some Ninevites, I don't know. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.